Well, it's our privilege tonight to turn to Daniel's prophecy, and we pick up in this next chapter, Daniel chapter 9. This chapter is a bit of a refresher for us, a bit of a breath, as Daniel turns his attention away from prophetic details, and we focus in on the prayer life of this great man of God, Daniel. It is significant, these details that Daniel unfolds here for us and encourages our hearts with, and tonight I just want to look at this prayer of Daniel in verses 1 through 19, and then next week we'll pick up on the actual prophecy that Daniel receives as he is in deep prayer here. This is a great section because it teaches us, again, about this man of God and his prayer life. We get a little insight into his own personal devotion and dedication to God. No doubt, other than maybe Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, when we get the recording of the high priestly prayer of our Lord there, this is one of the most significant prayers on one of one man on behalf of another. This is Daniel interceding for the nation of Israel. But there are some particular details that show us the significance of this. And again, this is important for us to note at this point because of the significant events that are about to come at the end of the chapter. When the angel Gabriel comes and gives a vision to Daniel and explains to Daniel the coming events and details, in that prophecy that's being revealed to Daniel, it's one of the most significant prophecies in all the scriptures. It is referred to by some as the very backbone of all eschatology. For all the events, all that's going to come and unfold, everything that's going to come out in God's end activities and the restoration of the kingdom and the ending of sin is going to unfold according to the particular plan that the angel revealed to Daniel. Part of it has already been revealed. The coming of the Messiah, the arrival of Christ onto the scene. The first part has already been fulfilled in particular details. There's a second aspect to that marvelous prophecy is yet to come. But before we even get to that significant prophecy, is the context in which that prophecy is revealed here, Daniel explains here in the opening verses. And we find Daniel in that very familiar spot. He is there before God, praying and interceding. We can call Daniel the prophet of prayer because of his great devotion. We have seen already that prayer has gotten Daniel in trouble, as we saw as Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. Daniel is here in this very spot praying once again. Notice verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Asarias, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. Verse 2, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books of the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the destruction of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. This sets up the context for which Daniel then begins his prayer. He says here that this is in the first year of the reign of Darius. First year, this is the Darius who is the made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. This is likely now then 539 or 538 B.C. Daniel at this point is 80 years old as he is praying. This is a few years before the lion's den event, so this is chronologically outside of the order, but this is still here. Daniel is quite older, been in in captivity now at this point for 66 or 67 years at this point. And something significant has just occurred. In the midst of the events, 
Babylon has just been defeated and there's a new ruler, a Persian king, a Median king of descent described here in verse 1. A new king in control. It's no longer the Babylonians who took Daniel into captivity. It is now the, a new kingdom in control. And Daniel is starting to factor in the events. Daniel, as he says there in verse 2, that in this he says, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet. Daniel is very much aware of Jeremiah's prophecies. He's very much aware of the particular details of this prophet. As Daniel was a young man, Jeremiah was prophesying. And Daniel, knowing the works of the prophets, had studied them regularly, knew of this particular prophecy, which we'll look at in a few moments. But the point is that Daniel was aware of particular details, and he names it here in verse 2, exactly what those details were, because in that prophecy, Jeremiah the prophet had observed the number of years, the amount of time that Israel was going to be in captivity. It was observed in the prophet. And he is studying this. And he is beginning to factor in how many years he's been in captivity. And he's beginning to recognize we are about to come to the end here. And in this prophecy, Jeremiah's prophecy, which, by the way, is recorded in Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 11 and 12, and then repeated in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 10 through 14. The prophecy is given twice, speaking of the judgment to come, the amount of time it would take, and the Babylonians who were the ones under judgment. So Daniel is thinking about this prophecy, and he is thinking about the events to come, and he is anticipating what's going to happen. He's recognizing that some of the details are already being fulfilled. Babylon has just been defeated. And now how do we start to factor those 70 years? When did the 70 years begin? Did it begin at Daniel's deportation? Did it begin a few years later? Did it begin at the end of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem? What, what was the beginning of this 70-year period of time? Did it happen even before that time? Daniel is curious, wrestling through it. And at least he knows this, this is very near. As he is weighing all this out, he's overwhelmed by these particular details, we start to see then his response. He starts to see his response to, to these events. As he is seeing unfolding the historical events around, he, he gives us a kind of response that we ought to follow in. I think this is significant for us because what Daniel teaches us here is how to respond when we know the truth of God's word and we are living it out historically. The kind of temptation in our heart is to think this, well, if God knows everything and he's orchestrating everything, then why pray? I mean, it isn't going to change his mind. It's not going to change his will. We can't change anything. He's in control. Why pray? Why say anything to God? He's the one orchestrating and directing everything. I mean, after all, does God's sovereignty then just nullify our responsibility? He's sovereign. He's in control. So we just give up and fatally go along for the ride and just cruise along. And he directs us the way we are to be directed. Well, that wasn't Daniel's response. Daniel knew exactly what was coming. Because God had revealed it. And Daniel was living it out historically. And instead of taking a kind of fatalistic response, saying, okay, well then God, you're directing according to, you, to your purposes and your desires, so I'll just sit back, eat my popcorn, and watch how you unfold the details. He doesn't take that at all. Daniel demonstrates for us here what a heart of faith looks like. The faithful prayers of a righteous man, understanding the will of God and the way of God, how he, how he manages those two seemingly impossible truths of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. He walks out that line right here in this marvelous chapter. 
never diminishing the sovereign rule and directing a God, and yet never departing from his own personal responsibility of pursuing God. And we see this example in his great prayer in this context. So there's some lessons, some details we can draw out for us. And I think I have seven here, seven characteristics of a godly prayer. So let's just work our way through and and unpack Daniel's prayer here. First lesson we can observe is this about prayer. That prayer, deep prayer, is faith-filled and scripturally informed. Deep prayer is faith-filled and scripturally informed. We get that, again, in these opening two verses. As Daniel is seeing the historical details around, his first response is to go observe in the books the number of years. In this phrase here, observe in the books, he's he's going to the scrolls. He's going to the scrolls of of the prophets. He is reading through the scriptures and he is analyzing them and he is evaluating them. And he's drawn his attention particularly to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet. He is going to the Holy Scriptures and he is evaluating the Holy Scriptures and informing his mind to pray according to the will of God. It's important. This is what God has said is going to take place. And I guarantee you, the best prayers, the richest prayers, are the prayers prayed according to God's revealed will. You know, certainly that's going to be fulfilled. I mean, I have lots of prayers But the ones that I focus in on are the ones that God has said in His Word. I know those ones are going to be fulfilled. It's going to be accomplished exactly what God said He's going to accomplish. So this Daniel, in this sense, coming in says, All right, if God, you've made this promise, then I am going to come along and pray that you fulfill your promise there. All right, that's exactly what he does. Jump down to verse 19. Notice what he says, O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, listen and take action. For, you, for your own sake, O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. Lord, do what you said you are going to do. Don't hold back. Go and do it. This is spiritually, scripturally informed prayer, and he has the confidence that God is going to do this. There's no doubting. There's no uncertainty here. There's no mistrust of God. There's no uh, fear that God isn't going to perform. There is an overwhelming confidence. God, do it. Do it now. Do it for your name's sake. Accomplish your good purposes. Oftentimes I would think, that our prayers are weak because of this very thing here. We are not informing our hearts and minds with the truth of God's Word. We haven't gone to the Scriptures. We haven't drawn out what the heart and mind and the will of God is. So we don't know how to pray as we ought in those moments. We don't know how to lift up the name of God or, or ask for the things that we ought to be asking for in that moment because we have not informed our minds of what the revealed will of God is. The revealed will of God we can pray according to. I mean, this is exactly what Jesus said in, when he taught his disciples how to pray. And his disciples asked him, Lord, teach us how to pray. And he gave them the Lord's Prayer. And in that he says, pray in this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And notice he said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is the prayer? The prayer is the acknowledgement of the revealed will of God. You accomplish your good purposes. Accomplish, God, what you said you're going to accomplish. Do your marvelous work. And what's interesting about this? Think about this. Even in verse 2 here, as Daniel is observing, he's observing particular details. And he comes to this point, and he's analyzing it, and he is praying, and he recognizes the completion of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. And he is factoring in the details. And even if he started with himself, he said, okay, my deportation started all this in 605 B.C. And this is now 538 or 539 B.C. We're now 66, 67 years into this deportation. 
he could sit there and say, well, I got three to four more years here. Might as well just stack this prayer up later. Might as well just wait. I got a few more years for this to be fulfilled. I mean, because I can't pray too soon for this. And yet, none of that changes his personal responsibility. I am praying, even if I recognize three more years or four more years until God fulfills, I am praying now, realizing this is getting close. Human responsibility is now nullified by God's sovereignty when God unfolding the particular details. Daniel is praying in line with the will of God. He's praying in line with what has been revealed. And when the details didn't line up with his expectations and desires, it didn't stop him from being faithful in praying. He was praying according to the scriptures. He was praying again, believing that God was going to accomplish exactly what God said he was going to accomplish. Knowing God's plan, again, did not stop Daniel from praying, and it didn't stop him from seeking God's response. In fact, it encouraged him all the more to pray, God, do exactly what you said you were going to do. This leads us to the second element of prayer. This healthy prayer, good prayer, again, is prompted by the clarity of Scripture. It is not only informed and, and, and based on faith in the Scriptures, it's prompted by the clarity of Scripture. This is exactly what, again, it brought out here. As Daniel says, he observed in the Scriptures, the, this is, the years are being completed, and it was time, the 70 years of desolation, the completion of this 70 years is coming to fulfillment, and it's what excites his prayerful response. He is appealing again to the prophet Jeremiah, and he is looking for the fulfillment particularly of this event. And on top of that, I would add this, that Daniel was expecting God to fulfill his promises exactly as God had said it. 70 years meant 70 years. Not 70 periods of time or 7,000 years or anything like that or 70 days, but 70 years particularly. And he's anticipating that. And in the midst of this plan, he was expecting that he was going to do, that God was going to accomplish his part. Let me show you this. Turn over to Jeremiah 25 and let me just show you this prayer. First of all, see it in Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12. It says this, Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12 says this, this whole land will be a desolation and a horror And these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will be when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon. And that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. Turn over to chapter 29 and verse 10. Again, the prophecy there is revealed. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. Twice. The prophecy is given through the prophet Jeremiah. And notice the significance of this particular detail. You have two aspects to this. There was one, the completion of the judgment of Babylon, and two, the number of years, 70 years. Now you're the prophet Daniel in that moment, and you're praying, and you just noticed Babylon is destroyed. You have a new king, a Persian king, a Median king, who is now ruling. Babylon is taken out of the way. And one of the very first questions you're going to ask in your mind, well, 
Does this mean that the 70 years has been completed? Is this the end of the 70 years? Because Babylon has been judged and they've been taken out of the way. Is this it? Is it related? Did the start of the timeline start with, with uh, the reign of Babylon? And when the reign of Babylon came to the end, therefore the 70 years ended? Or is it, about, is it the 70 years? Is that waiting for? Or are they both events? The judgment of Babylon and the 70 years. This is what's on Daniel's mind. You can turn back to... Well, actually, there in verse 20, or verse 10. Notice, actually, continue on here in Jeremiah 29.10. I want to point out a couple more details. Verse 11, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. One of the verses that is most taken out of context by those today who put up this verse on the wall and say, you know, here, I know the plans for you. Well, look at the context, this plan here the, that God is talking about is, I know my plans to rescue you from Babylonian captivity and bring you back. My plans to bless you. Now notice verse 12. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes, and I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile." Notice the prophet is saying here that there's going to be a response on behalf of the people that when this time comes, they're going to plead for God. They're going to call out to Him. They're going to beg for Him. They're going to beg for restoration and God is going to be favorable. Take that idea and turn back to Daniel chapter 9. This is Daniel then looking at the Scriptures analyzing the scriptures and recognizing Daniel realizes this. Not only is Babylonian captivity need to take place, and not only is the 70 years need to take place, but there's going to be a response on behalf of the people calling out to God, asking for deliverance, and Daniel steps into that gap. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray with a kind of heartfelt kind of Desire and longing for God's faithfulness to fulfill this that the prophet Jeremiah anticipated. I think that's what energizes Daniel here. He is praying according to the will of God. This isn't a kind of flippant prayer. This is a kind of prayer that he demonstrates, and we'll see it in these 19 verses, a kind of heartfelt agony longing for God's restoration and an acknowledgement that indeed God was just in his punishment. Call out. This is Daniel again, praying according to the will of God. Praying specifically, but also praying in fulfillment of what the prophet Jeremiah had anticipated. That the people were going to cry out and plead for God, and God was going to be merciful. He's praying according to the revealed clarity of God's word. Now one more detail before we jump back into the significance of the of the prayer here. Ask yourself the question, why 70 years? What's the significant about this period of time? Did God just kind of pick a random number out of the air? Uh, 70 years? No, there is a specific reason for this 70 years of judgment. God wasn't capricious in this number. He, was, he gave a specific reason for this number. A number in which we can understand clearly. Have you heard of the term the Sabbath years? In Leviticus chapter 25, verses 1 through 7, Moses describes for us the, and for Israel the Sabbath years. And in that description in Leviticus that the people of Israel were to labor with the ground for six years and on the seventh year they were to let their farmlands rest. 
They were to grow in the fields. They were to till the ground and use the ground and grow their crops and prune their vineyards. And they were to do all the work of the land for six years. And then on the seventh year, they were to allow their land to rest. This was known as the Sabbath year. And so they were to gather up and gain resources for six years to be able to last through the seventh year and then start over the process again. But the people of God didn't honor this. The people of God failed to honor this. And it's recorded for us in Second Chronicles chapter 36. I'll just read it to you. Second Chronicles chapter 36 in verse 15 through verse 21. Here's what the chronicle chronicler records for us. He says this. It says, In the Lord... The God of their fathers sent word to me again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on the people and on the dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God. They despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no more remedy. Therefore, He brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary. And and he had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirmed. He gave them all into his hand. And all the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his officers, he brought them all to Babylon." Then they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all of its valuable articles. And those who had escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon. And they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. Now I'll stop right there for a second. This is the unfolding of the chronicler of the events in Israel. Israel had been given the details by the prophets. God had sent the prophets to Israel, but Israel stubbornly resisted the prophets. They opposed the truth and resisted and rejected, so God had to bring judgment, and he brought judgment, and he destroyed Jerusalem, and he took the captives back to Babylon. Now verse 21 is the key. It says this, All of this was to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. You see, for 70 Sabbaths, Israel failed to keep the command of God. Over 490 years of rebellion, 490 years of rejection, Israel lived rejecting this command of God, not keeping the Sabbath. Seventy Sabbaths came and left, and Israel lived in rebellion. They rejected the prophets. They stubbornly resisted. So God judged Israel for 70 years. 70 years he judged them keeping the land desolate so the land would receive its rest. So this 70-year period of time that Israel and the captives were under Babylonian captivity and now Persian captivity was specific by God to give the land rest because of their 490 years of open rebellion against God. Now, that 490 years is going to become important later on in this chapter, so just keep that in mind for next week. But at this point, now, the 70 years of rest is about to be fulfilled. Daniel sees his part in this role, that he is praying in in a way according to the Scriptures, and he is anticipating the events to come. This leads us to now the third aspect of Daniel's prayer. Daniel prays with contrition. Praise with contrition. Daniel 9 and verse 3 says this. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications and with fasting, sackcloth and ashes. Look at this prayer. 
This prayer is not just praying intensely to God, but it is accompanied by the demonstration and posture of contrition. He's praying with his supplications, but he's praying along with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. He is in a state of remorse. He's demonstrating his open brokenness over the state of the people of God and what he is presently in. This here, again, the times you can think of the sackcloth and ashes here is almost reflected back to Job in his state of misery when he, was, he had his, the sores and he is now sitting down in a state of ruin. That's the idea here. He comes before God, acknowledging himself in a state of ruin, recognizing his utter need for God. Added on top of that, it was also with great fasting there's a state of contrition here. He comes with, a, as the Puritans would describe, a, a perpetual brokenheartedness. It comes with a measure of humility. He's not entering into this prayer recognizing, okay, God, I'm going to give you a list of instructions. You go out and execute for me. It's coming in recognizing his lowly estate before God. It is a deliberate act here as well. A deliberate humbling of himself as he enters into this particular state. And I recognize that there might be, ultimately in our prayer lives, those particular events, those particular states, when this is such a significant request that there is a kind of entry point in which we come in recognizing our humble contrition. God protect us. Honestly, I think if you had a loved one who is dying... If you had a significant event occurring in your life, this is the natural response. God, I am undone. I have no power. I have nothing to offer in my great strength or wisdom or might. I am humbly in your hands. And then there is a prayerful dependence upon God. That's contrition here. That's the idea of devoteness, earnestness, kind of concentrated effort where he is setting himself towards God. Literally nothing else matters, not even his own personal comfort, not even his own, again, comforts. What's most important is the honor of God. And as he is praying here, he's not only praying in faith, he's not only praying according to the revealed God, revealed will of God in Scripture, He's not only praying in a kind of humility and contrition, but the fourth characteristic is that he's praying worshipfully. He's praying worshipfully. Notice verses 4 and 5. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, At last, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and committed iniquity and acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. There is a worshipful aspect to Daniel's prayer as he entered in here. This is the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness. He is praying in such a way that before he's even making his petitions, before he's even even interceding, there's a moment to reflect on the greatness of God and what he has done. There's a setting of everything in its proper perspective. A setting of everything according to the character of God and what he is doing. I think too often we're running into prayer looking for particularly what we're going to get out of that situation. We don't take the time to reflect on the character of God. Like Jesus again taught, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's about your sovereign will. It's about you directing God. It's about your glory. What's most important, God, in the midst of this prayer is that you are glorified and you are honored and your name is lifted up. Before we even get to these meager little requests that I have, let's acknowledge first part, the greatness of God. 
It's adoration and worship. I think this identifies the heart of faithful prayer that comes to God with a heart of worship and adoration for who he is. And even in the light of it, he's comparing in verse 5 the awareness of his unworthy presence. Notice he says there, we have sinned and committed, adult, uh, committed iniquity and acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. And by the way, just putting that there, Daniel was a youth when he was taken into captivity. Could have been as young as 10, maybe 13, late as 17. It's in that window of time. He was not a ruler in Israel. He was not a landowner that we know of. He wasn't there who was using the land in rebellion to God. He was caught up in Israel's rebellion And yet he is putting himself with the people. We have sinned. We have committed this iniquity. We have acted wickedly. You are the great God. You are filled with awesomeness. You are the covenant-keeping God. This is who we are. There's an awareness and a worshipfulness. It's unworthy to come and make these requests, but we make them nonetheless. Fifth element, Daniel prayed intercedingly for God's people. He intercedes. Notice verses 6 through 8. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, or our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame as it is this day, To the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away, in all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds, which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, to our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Notice the language here that Daniel incorporates all of Israel. We who are your servants, he says in verse 6. Verse 7, to us is open shame. To Verse 7, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, all of us, everyone that you've driven out, all of us, we're the ones praying. The end of verse 7 again, which they have committed against the Verse 8, open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned. He is coming on behalf of all the peoples, from the kings to all the, to the fathers, to everybody. Interceding. Prayerfully lifting up the people of God. This isn't a self-absorbed prayer concerned about his own needs and his own desires. This is a prayer for the people. A prayer for others. Lift our burdens. Carry our, help us carry our burdens. And that's exactly, exactly what Daniel does here. And I believe, again, that Daniel not only is, has a deep love for the people of God, and so he's praying for the people of God, but I also believe that Daniel here is fulfilling exactly what he read in the prophet Jeremiah. He says, I am going to take for the people, take them before God. If they're not going to do it, I will do it for them. I'm going to intercede. That's what they need. I mean, so often you think about our Christian life and you see our brothers and sisters walking around and they're weak in faith and you tell them, brother, pray, pray to God, seek his face, seek his will that he will be favorable. And yet they're so weak in their efforts and striving, you have to come along for them. All right, I'll pray for you. you. You don't have the faith that you need in this moment. I'll pray for you. I will do, I will fulfill for you. What you need in this moment, you need to be entrusting yourself to a faithful God. Sixthly, Daniel prayed with confession. He prayed confessing. Notice, start us in verse 9 all the way down to verse 15. Notice what he says there. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. 
Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in His teachings, which He set before us through His servants, the prophets. And again, He is now just repeating exactly what's been stated through the prophets. We didn't listen. He is confessing and acknowledging all that God has said. Verse 11, Indeed, all Israel has transgressed. None of us have escaped. We have transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath which was written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, who we have sinned against him. Thus, he has confirmed his words which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring on us great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what was done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord, our God, by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. This is confession. This is honest, true confession. Notice again, verse 15. And now, O Lord our God, we have brought your people, or who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day. We have sinned. We have been wicked. This is a prayer of true confession. That is the idea of confession in 1 John chapter 1, John says that we, if we confess our sins, hamalageo is the word, if we say the same thing as God, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our transgressions. That's exactly what Daniel demonstrates here. Exactly what the prophet Jeremiah had declared the guilt of the people was is exactly what Daniel acknowledges here. We have sinned. We are guilty. We violated Moses' commands. You said consequences were going to come. They came. You're right. We're wrong. We sinned. We violated. We're getting exactly what we deserve. God, you are right. And in all of this, this is proper confession. How many times have you sat down with somebody trying to work with them, encourage them to do the right thing, and they're kind of like jello jumping around and you can never pin them down? They never take personal responsibility for anything. They're never acknowledging that they were wrong. It's always some excuse. Well, you didn't understand what they said to me. You didn't understand how they looked at me. You didn't understand the pressure I was under. There's always a justified reason for them to act up wrong. That wasn't Daniel in this case. Daniel, in this case, says, I, we were guilty. Everything you said was right. Everything you said was going to happen, happens. Everything that we did justly deserved your judgment. That is a faithful prayer. It's a prayer of confession, acknowledging full guilt, and acknowledging God had every right to bring about the judgment he brought to the degree that he brought the judgment, to the level of severity in which the judgment came, to the amount of suffering they had to go through, all of it was just, God, you were perfect in your judgments. That's a faithful prayer of contrition and confession. Final element is this. So, it's true, they're guilty. True, they're under judgment. It's true, he is praying for their deliverance. And then finally, we see that Daniel petitions for God's forgiveness. God forgive. Notice the remaining verses from 16 through 19. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteousness or your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and And the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem, and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to the supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, 
Let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. And oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but notice, but on account of your great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. For your own sake, O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. Notice how Daniel takes this and says, Okay, God, for your glory's sake, do this. Do it for your directing. Forgive that your name would be lifted up again. Forgive so that your people would be restored. Forgive so that your city will be rebuilt. Forgive that your people will come back. Forgive that your name will be exalted again. Do what you said you're going to do and put yourself on display. And you, God, demonstrate the riches of your character so everything will be pointed back to you. Now that is a prayer of deep contrition and devotion to the Most High God. Daniel, again, it could have been very easily said, for us, for our comfort again, I want to go back and live in my nice house and enjoy the land again. No, this was a heart of realizing God for your sake. Notice all the terms from verses 16 through 19. It's for your city, Jerusalem, and for your holy people, and for your holy mountain. And verse 17, for your sake, and for your, your sanctuary. And verse 18, the city which is called by your name, and for your compassion. Verse 19, for your own sake, your city, your people, your name. God, not about us and our restoration, about you and your honor. I love that in this prayer taking the attention off of man, off of man's wants and desires, and putting the attention on God and his great glory and honor. This is a faithful prayer, a righteous prayer. Again, a prayer that Daniel is pleading over, burdened by, overwhelmed, praying, He is, again, in the state in which he is in sackcloth and ashes and fasting. I mean, we just read through the prayer in a few short moments. This was interceding for a long period of time. And I love in verse 20, it says that while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of the people and presenting my supplications before the Lord my God on behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in a vision previously, came to me. Daniel is in this intense prayer before God, laying his own heart out, and is in the midst of this prayer struggle, God came and gave him the next vision. Man, may all of our prayers end that way. But if it doesn't end that way, it could demonstrate these qualities. It can be a prayer of faith. It can be praying in line with the revealed will of God from his word. It can be prayer filled with contrition and humility and brokenness, not pride. It can be directed in worship and adoration to God. It can be interceding for great spiritual needs of others and not self-absorbed and self-focused. It can be confessing sin and it can be filled with petitioning God for forgiveness and for the honor of his name. That we can have right now. And maybe God might bless us and throw an angel in in the end. But if he doesn't, at least those first seven qualities can guarantee us that we have rich and faithful prayer life. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Indeed, Father, we do not pray as we ought. And even when we have been informed by our Lord how we ought to pray in such simple ways, clearer ways, we do not practice as we should. But may this example of Daniel be that example that encourages our hearts and directs us and strengthens us to follow in his footsteps. And indeed, we would be marked as prayer warriors, that we would be the kind of people who are praying in deep, rich, scripture-saturated faith. 
And we are praying according to your revealed will. And we're praying with a kind of confidence that we know you will listen. We know you will hear because we ask not for our own will. We ask for your will to be done. And we pray with a heart that is burdened for others. And we confess our sins and acknowledge the frailties of our ways. But we come not with a kind of pride that expects that you will listen. But we come with a contrition recognizing we do not deserve to have you hear any word but that you would acknowledge us and call us your children and allow us to enter into your presence and to call out to you, Abba, Father, and to address you as one who is near to us like a father is near to us. We are overwhelmed the mercy and grace that you've lavished us with. And so when we enter into your presence, may we come with a kind of gratitude that should fill the hearts of every believer thankful for all that you're doing. And then we come in such a way that we're filled up with awe and wonder because we're entering into the presence of the Most High God, filled with worship, filled with adoration for you because of what you've accomplished. And Father, when we come, may we not be self-absorbed, looking to our own interests, expecting that you're going to come and comfort all of our hurts and wants, but we come wearing and carrying the burdens of our brothers and sisters. And we come burdened for your will to be done. And we come burdened that you will accomplish your eternal purposes and that the kingdom will come and that you will establish your great order and we will see your great name on display. For indeed, we would say, just like Daniel would say, put your name on display, God. Bring back and demonstrate the riches of your glory. Silence the mockers. Refute the critics. Expose the unbelieving heart of the rebellious. Demonstrate your righteousness, your glory, your honor. Demonstrate the riches of your ways so that righteousness will reign again. And there will be the sweetness of your grace on display for all. And we ask this, Father, because we need your work. We, we confess that we are sinful, that we have rebelled against your ways, that we have stubbornly resisted the truth. But you've been so faithful to forgive. And so, Father, we ask as we lay these petitions out and direct so for your name's sake and build up your people and bring honor to Christ and continue to demonstrate the riches and the glory of his name so that there will be no doubt in everyone's mind that you alone are the King of kings and Lord of lords, that you alone rule. And take us as your people who are humbly devoted and use us as your servants. And we follow in the example of faithful men who have gone before us, men like Daniel, to follow in his footsteps, simply to be your servants and to do your will. So direct us this week as we we go to live out all that we've learned this day. It's in your blessed name we pray. Amen.